As you know, I was the privilege to be the rabbi of this congregation for 20 years. And I have a confession to make before we begin our examination today, and that is that I will say that I was not the man of prayer at that time that I wish I was. We often think uh, of certain people in our congregation who are really the, the prayer warriors. I think of Del Leftwich, I think of Roya Vetter, I think of Anne, I think of Harland, and we tend to admire these people because they pray a lot. And we know that we should, and we pray kind of episodically, especially when we're in trouble. But I would say my estimation is that for most people, uh, I don't know how to put this exactly, but I would say that for most of us, and that was including me as a hotshot professional, prayer is not foundational to our lives. It is something that we we bring into our lives when the occasion requires it. You know, for me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna prepare a message, I pray. I'm gonna minister to somebody, I pray. But that's not the way prayer is in the Bible. It's not something you bring in when you have an emergency like a fire extinguisher. It's supposed to be foundational in your lives. And my, uh, I, my intention this morning uh, is to inspire you, uh, to encourage you, to challenge you, to motivate you, to examine the place of prayer in your life, and to make some changes. So <clears throat> let's ask for the help of the Holy Spirit, without which none of this matters. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come and... Uh, open our hearts and our minds, come and still the, uh, the chatter, all the other things that crowd into our imaginations and our thoughts at this time. Uh, come like Yeshua stilling the waters of the Galilee and still the waters of our minds that we might hear your voice and the, that we might walk on the water of our lives. Living lives of miraculous power through the goodness of our God. Help us, we pray. We really need it. And we ask your Messiah's name. Okay. Many of you, if I was to talk to you, and I'm not accusing, <coughs> I'm not accusing because we're all in the same boat. Uh, many of you, if I uh, said, you know, how much do you pray? And you, the first reflex would be, Rabbi, I'm so busy. Um, and we do live in a very, very busy age. Uh, and there, there are seven reasons why we tend to be too busy. And I'd like to, I think you'll recognize yourself in, uh, in a few of these. First of all, it's a badge of honor and status. When I worked with Jews for Jesus, uh, our, our boss was a, was a workaholic. Uh, a man who uh, just uh, work was life. And if you wanted to be, uh, uh, commend yourself, you proved yourself to be a hard worker. I did seven record albums while I was with Jews for Jesus, and I developed the reputation of, you know, that Dowerman, he's really brilliant, you know. He may have to stay awake, and, 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 and uh, one time I did an album, for nine weeks I got four hours of sleep a night and I worked all the rest of the time. G 
great album. I was sick as a dog a few months <laughs> later. But the, you get a reputation for, 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 for it. People admire you if you're a very hard worker. I'm not against hard work. I believe in it. But there's such a thing as being just, thank you so much, Joshua. There's such a thing as being too busy because it's dysfunctional. That's one of the dysfunctionalities. It's a badge of honor and status. Another one is job security. Some of you have to always be um, seen as working because you're not sure your boss will like you or approve of you unless you're always seen to be working. That's another reason. The third one is a fear of missing out. Uh, you know, you want to you want to be involved in everything. So people have bucket lists. You know, bucket list is a. You know what a bucket list is? The things you want to do before you die. And some people spend their whole life trying to make sure they make their list, but they keep they keep so busy. There's no time to sit still and 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 contemplate and and be alone with their thoughts and things like that. Another reason we're too busy is digital mania. I mean, I'm not criticizing. But many of us have our nose pointed toward a screen 18 hours a day. We even go to bed with it. Uh, and, and we wake up. Uh, you know, I'm on a screen after I go to bed. I have a habit of looking at, my, looking at my iPad after I'm in bed. And I have it before I get out of bed, I'm looking at my iPad again. So I'm not accusing. But I'm saying that, that the digital revolution has created in us a constancy of of activity, of chatter. Also, it's a time filler. Uh, some of us, some people don't like to be alone with their thoughts. There are things they don't want to think about, things that they, uh, I tend to, you may not believe this, but I tend to be a very anxious person. And I, I wake up anxious every morning. Uh, um, I'm not going to psychoanalyze myself and say where it came from, but it's the truth. And for some people, the way they they deal with their anxiety is always keeping busy, so they don't have to think about those things. Another thing, sometimes people are just very busy out of necessity. A single mother's got three children. She works three jobs. Uh, she takes care of her children. I mean, give us a break. Can you criticize such a person? Of course not. They're very, very busy. And finally, sometimes we're busy out of escapism. It's called Facebook. I, Stuart Darman, rabbi and PhD, spend too much darn time on Facebook. It's escapism. It's easier than dealing with the things that make you anxious. So for all these reasons, we're, 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 we tend to be very busy. And busyness is a choice, even if it's a choice you let other people make for you. You know, if you have a, if you have a boss, you know, I remember my wife um, at one time was working as a, uh, as an administrative assistant to Mitch Glazer, who is now my son's father-in-law. And Mitch at this time was a big shot with Jews for Jesus. Naomi was his uh, kind of assistant. And Mitch could generate more work than the entire universe could manage to pull out, you know? And one time she came to him and she said, you know, uh, you gave me this, you gave me this, you gave me this. He says, which of these things don't you want done? Because I can't do all of them. And, and uh, so sometimes you have a boss or somebody in your family who drives you, but you make a decision to let yourself be driven. So busyness is a choice, even if it's a choice that you let other people make for you. 
So I want to ask you two questions as we're heating up this subject that we're going to be looking at today. First question is, look into your mind, and I, we could spend about 10 minutes of silence now while you do this, but we don't have that time. What are you busy doing day in, day out? And why and for whom are you busy? Are you busy for a boss? Are you busy for escapism? Are you busy Are you busy for entertainment? Are you busy for avoidance? Or, holy cow, are you busy for God? That would be interesting. But ask yourself, who, how busy are you? And how, and what are you busy for? Who are you busy for? So, I've got good news and bad news about busyness and prayer. I found it interesting doing research for this message that of all the developed countries and, uh, where there's a high gross uh, 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 average income, New York, I'm sorry, New York. You can see where my mind is. Uh, the United States, which is New York, um, the, the United States is far in advance of other countries in prayer. 55% of people in the United States say that they pray every day. That's way ahead of other developed countries. In the UK, 16%. 16%. Wow. So Americans pray more than other developed countries. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I think they're thinking about Americans in general. Good question. Good question. Uh, but Americans, the bad news is Americans are praying less now. Uh, it's, it's dropping, and especially millennials. Uh, 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 millennials are, 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 are really dropping prayer like it's a hot rock. And the younger the millennials, the more it's being dropped. There's something called the Pew Study that studied this, and you can find the statistics. And I'll show you some if you want. I have some with me. So, why should we bother why should I be bothering you about praying? Here's a short answer. If the Bible is at all true, prayer offers us benefits none of us would ever want to miss out on. Now, I want to give a warning. I'm not inviting you to become religious, to become one of those people that other people admire because you're a prayer warrior. I want you to continue to be a normal human being but I, I want to invite you to consider how prayer should be foundational in your life. Not so you get quirky and strange and where everybody points to you as a religious person on the block. I'm not pointing towards that. I'm not talking, towards path talking about pathology. I'm talking about spiritual health. And I believe that a life, a robust life of prayer is indispensable for real spiritual health and vitality. If the Bible is at all true, prayer offers us benefits that none of us would ever miss out on, would want to miss out on. So we're going to look at three things today. We're going to, take a, we're going to get a lesson about prayer from Paul, a lesson about prayer from Yeshua, and a lesson about prayer from the entire Bible. That's what we're going to do in the next 15 minutes. 
first, a lesson from Paul. I've got a few quotes here. This is amazing as I begin to study this. Prayer is a force for change in the world. It is not just something that pious people do in order to earn brownie points with God. It's, it's actually a force for change. Let's read a few passages. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 to 29. Paul is writing, and he says, For we, we for our part, proclaim him. We warn, we confront, and we teach everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone as having reached the goal, united with the Messiah. And then he uses a verb that I have here marked out in yellow. It is for, it is for this that I toil, striving with all the energy that he stirs up in me so mightily. This term, striving. Now this is pertaining to Paul's work life. Was Paul a busy man? He's one of the busiest people in history. Uh, the, the things he accomplished, the amount of travels he did, uh, people to this day are astounded at the amount of travel and the, the amount of the, of the ancient world that he covered. It's really unbelievable. Look it up on the internet. Look up how much did Paul travel and you'll be astounded. Uh, he was very busy and he refers to that as striving. Next slide, please. And by the way, I want to thank Sean for his technological expertise and his servant spirit. I couldn't do these things without him. So thank you, Sean. Uh, the the word verb he uses for striving is agonizomai. Agonizomai, it should sound like a familiar word. Agony. I agonize. It, it, it's used in, 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 the, in the Bible uh, in an ancient world to, to enter a contest uh, to contend in the gymna gymnastic games. And Agon was an arena where gymnastic games and combats were conducted. To agonize is to fight like your life depended on it. It's universally to contend with adversaries, to fight. Figuratively is to contend, to struggle with difficulties or with dangers, antagonistic to the good news of, of the Messiah. It's to fight. It's to fight the good fight. It's not a passive verb. So Paul says that in his life, in terms of his work, his work style, he really fights. He says in 2 Corinthians, I pummel my body like, like an athlete. I, I, I work out I, so that I can really be energetic in the, in the service of God. It's to endeavor with strenuous zeal, strife, to obtain something. Now, why am I pointing that out? Next slide. Let's see. Oh, oh there we go. Just a moment. He talks uh, later in the same book. This is in Colossians. He uses the same verb about a guy named Epaphras, who's one of his associates. And he says this. Epaphras sends greetings. He is one of you, a slave of the Messiah Yeshua, watch, who always agonizes in his prayer on your behalf praying that you may stand firm, mature, and fully confident as you devote yourselves completely to God's will. That's the same verb. Prayer is work. It's labor. It's, it's effort. It's not just kind of sitting and blissing out. It's not Buddhist prayer. This is work. But why? Because prayer makes a difference. 
God has determined for reasons of his own that his will goes forward in the world through the prayers of his people. Let me give you an example, just one. At the end of the book of Job, I hope you've all read the book of Job. If you haven't, you should. It's my son Chaim's favorite book in the Bible. I happen to love it too. In the book of Job, as you know, Job suffers terribly, loses three daughters, seven sons, all his wealth, all his health. And in the whole book, he's holding out for the fact, I didn't deserve this. I have been a righteous man. And all of his friends who have, have uh, conventional theological opinions, they all say, uh-uh, you must have done something really bad for God to let this happen to you. And the whole book is them confronting him with various conventional arguments about why he has been, uh, he has earned this misfortune. At the end of the book, God shows up and he says that Job was right and you guys were wrong. And then he, he, he judges these guys and uh, um, I don't know that he takes their health away, but he puts them under judgment. And then he says, go to my servant Job, he will pray for you and I will forgive you. Now notice that. God could have forgiven them anyway. But he wanted to use the instrumentality of Job's prayers. This happens also with Abraham in the Torah. And I can't go into the detail, but if you want me to prove this to you, I'll be happy to. But the point is, is that for reasons of his own that we don't understand, God delights to accomplish his will in the world through the prayers of his people. So when we pray, we are opening doors for change. It's not a pious merit badge. It is probably the most effective use of your energy that you could imagine. Because when you open a door for God, watch. My son opened the door to God a tiny, tiny crack about two and a half years ago. And then God came in and totally revolutionized his life in a way that was just remains astounding. So prayer is work. So if you're looking for, if you'd rather watch television, enjoy yourself. Prayer is not TBN. Prayer is work, but it's the best investment of your energies possible because it releases God's energy. So, so we see there that Epaphras is agonizing in prayer. It's not that he's emotionally broken down. He's wrestling. He's wrestling in prayer. Now, why God decides it should be that way, don't ask me. I don't know. Nobody else does either, but that's the way it works. Finally, at the end of Romans, in Romans 15, Paul brings these two ideas together. He says, and now I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Yeshua the Messiah and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God on my behalf. There they are, together. Join me in my agonizing by praying to God on my behalf. I went around in this room today before I preached and I asked a number of you to pray. Because unless the Holy Spirit opens up our hearts and brings things to our, our uh, 
to, 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 to our consciousness, then the best that can happen is that you'll come up to me afterwards and say, that was a good sermon, Rabbi. I know it's a good sermon. I knew it was a good sermon before I got here. That, that's not the point. The point is, does it change your life? The point is, is, what good does it do? And for that, you pray. Do we understand? Amen. Prayer is not a little, it's not an extra. It is not like the cinnamon you put on the pastry. It is the cake. Moving on. Now let's look at some lessons from Yeshua. Was Yeshua, was Yeshua a busy man? I invite you to look, for example, at Luke chapter 4, 5, and 6, or Mark chapter 4, and just pause for a minute and take a look at how busy Yeshua was. Not only was he teaching and preaching all over the place, but thousands of people were, flock, were, were flocking around him, desperate for him to touch them and heal them and their loved ones. Thousands of people. Not just once in a while. All the time. So don't talk to me about how busy you are. I have great respect, and I'm not criticizing you, but I'm, I'm trying to help you come to grips with something. Your busyness, my busyness, is nada, nothing, compared to Paul and Yeshua. Now, a few passages. This, is one, this one's from, uh, from chapter 4, and uh, I've got to turn around and look at that. Now, let's see if I can see it. And when day had come, let's look at this. When day had come, he left and went away to a lonely spot. The people looked for him. They came to him, and they would have pressed him to leave again. But he said to them, I must announce the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns too. That's why I was sent. For he also sent time preaching in the synagogues of Jehu. So what happened is he went away to a lonely spot. Why do you think he went away to a lonely spot? We're going to find out. We're going to find out in the next passage. Luke, Luke makes it clear. He, he went away to a lonely spot to pray. And I think he prayed for two reasons. As I look at, at, at the narrative in Luke, he prayed for two reasons. The chief reason, I think, was for, for always for, clar for clarity. He needed clarity. Because, you know, when you've got thousands of people pulling on your, literally pulling on your clothes and rushing to get, to get a hold of you and screaming and crying and begging for the healing of their loved ones, you're going you're gonna to lose a grip on what your, what your agenda is. I mean, it's only normal and human. So he would go aside in order to reconnect with his agenda. And we see that in this passage, that they come to him and they plead with him uh, uh, the people came looking for him. They, I mean, they wouldn't let him rest. They, they found him. And they were, we don't know how many there were at this point. 20, 30, 40, 100, 200, 300, 1,000? I don't know. But they're begging him to stay. There's more healing that has to be done. He says, no, I'm sorry. I've got to go to the other towns because that's why I came out. Now, where did he get the strength and the focus to be able to say no? 
at that point. He got it in his time of prayer with his father. He needed to get clarity. Is there anybody else besides me in this room that needs to get clarity about their life and their choices? Uh, I desperately do. Not just once in a while, day by day. Okay, let's look at the next passage. But the news about Yeshua kept spreading all the more so that huge crowds would gather to listen and be healed of their sicknesses. However, he made a practice of withdrawing to remote places in order to pray. So Luke tells us that it's not just something he did once in a while. He made a practice of doing that. I'm not here to guilt trip you. We need to make a practice of praying. It should not be something that is kind of episodic when we feel particularly anxious or when a crisis hits. It should be something that we make a practice of doing. That's what Yeshua did. He made a practice of doing this. One more passage. Uh, it was around that time that Yeshua went out to the hill country to pray. Now, around that time, if you look, he's been healing people all day long. All day long, he preached in his synagogue. In, uh, 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 he's preaching in synagogues. He's teaching. He's been healing people all day long. But it was around that time that Yeshua went out into the hill country to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. All night. What would it take for me and for you to pray all night long in the midst of an impossibly busy schedule? It has to be important. And he was not doing that to earn brownie points. He was doing that because he had a very big choice to make. What was it? When day came, he called his Talmudim, and he chose from among them 12 to be known as emissaries, apostles. In order to decide from all of his scores, hundreds of, of disciples, who are going to be, who are the people I'm going to turn this whole thing over to after I'm gone? He spent all night in prayer, talking to his father, trying to work it out. Okay, so he prayed for clarity and I think perhaps for empowerment. I can't prove the empowerment part, except that Yeshua does say when at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, when there's this young boy who's having seizures and the apostles can't figure out why they couldn't heal him, he says, this, this, this kind doesn't come out by, except by prayer and, and fasting, by prayer and fasting. So Yeshua said that he's connecting prayer to empowerment, and it was true for him too. So thirdly, a lesson from the entire Bible, prayer is an environment for divine encounter. Do you want to experience the presence of God? Do you want to bump into the supernatural? Well, the best advice I can give you is make a habit of praying. And, I, and I, I, it turns out I picked people from the New Testament here. I believe in the Old Testament too. But this is just off the top of my head. Think of these people. Zechariah, the, fa the father of John the Baptist. He gets a chance to burn incense in the temple only once in a lifetime. He gets this chance. And what is he doing? He's praying about what's most important to him. He wants a son. But it's in prayer that the angel comes to him. It's not while he's eating lunch. It's while he's praying. And then Peter on the housetop, 
when he goes up on the housetop to pray and, and this, the, this vision of the sheet comes down and, he, and th that happens in the time of prayer. Cornelius is praying about three o'clock in the afternoon during the time of Mincha prayers because he's following Jewish life just as Peter is. They're both praying at standard times. They make a practice out of praying. They have a schedule of praying. Peter experiences this revelation from God in the midst of prayer. Cornelius does. Wherever you go in the Bible, uh, prayer is the environment where you bump into God. So what have we learned? While the Bible is the fuel, prayer is the oxygen from which the fire of God's spirit burns. Listen to that again. While the Bible is the fuel, prayer is the oxygen by which this, the fire of the spirit burns, energizing and illuminating everything else in our lives. So if you are a Yeshua believer, and most of you are here today, and if your life is dark or weak, give yourself to prayer. Now, I'm going over a little bit tonight, and I trust I'll be forgiven. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about our, 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 this man. Could you give, give us the next slide, please? This is a man. His name is George Mueller. I'm going to tell you about a person whose life is a perfect illustration of everything I've been saying in just one moment. He was born September 27, 1805. He died 92 years later. He lived in Great Britain. And he showed the world that God answers prayer. I could stand here for three, for three weeks and tell you stories. I'm not going to do all of that. Just going to give you a taste. He lived about the same time as Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens was born seven years after him. You remember in the Christmas Carol when Scrooge, when th these guys come to Scrooge asking for some money for charity, uh, for the poor, and Scrooge says, are there no workhouses? What were workhouses like in Victorian England. They had something called the Poor Law of 1834. Dickens was very familiar with this. He lived at that time, and so did George Mueller. The Victorian era became notorious for the forced employment of children as young as four years old, often working children as young as four, often working 16 hours a day in factories and mines where they generally died before they were 25. Now I'm going to ask my friend, Mickey Hevesy, who um, uh, is a professional actress type. She can read better than me. I want you to pay careful attention to something which you will, I promise, never forget. Here you go, Mickey. Am I, if I can, yeah. All right. <coughs> Take the pressure off here. <laughs> Uh, where do we want to start? Right here? Okay, great. Okay, <clears throat> in 1834, in all of England, there were accommodations for only 3,600 orphans. Twice that number of children under the age of eight were in prison, and only about 20% of the children in London. Ha 
then only about 20% of the children in London had any schooling at all. In 1948, Lord Ashley referred to more than 30,000 naked, filthy, roaming, lawless, and deserted children in and around the metropolis. So with only two shillings, which is less than 50 cents, in his pocket, but with great faith enough to move mountains, George Mueller, this man, set out to change things. He wanted to show people that ours is a prayer answering God. Mueller longed for something that would act as visible proof that our God and Father is the same faithful God as he ever was, as willing as ever to prove himself to be the living God in our day as formerly to all who put their trust in him. That was a quote of him. For the next 64 years of his life and until the death of his age at 92, Mueller irrefutably proved God's sufficiency and care on a truly grand scale. Orphans were taken in without any charge for admission. They were well cared for, taught the word of God, given a good education, and sent out to the world equipped with a trade to earn a good living. Starting with only 30 children in one house, over the course of his lifetime, Mueller built five large buildings of solid granite capable of accommodating 2,000 orphans at a time. In total, he cared for 10,024 orphans in his life. And additionally, he also established 117 schools, which provided a solid Christian education to over 120,000 children. That's phenomenal. <clears throat> I heard he raised over a million dollars. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Okay. Mueller looked to God alone to supply their every need. Along with everyone that worked for him, he operated under a maxim that no person was ever asked for anything, regardless of how great or pressing the need might appear. With unwavering trust in God, Mueller daily prayed for the Lord to provide the food, children, and shelter for the thousands of children under his care, and God never failed them. Um, I just add in here. Sometimes, sometimes they would be praying. And sometimes they'd pray, this isn't in your notes, but I know this. They would pray because they had no food. The kids would be at breakfast, and they would say, we're going to pray. And the, the milk truck would break down in front of the house. And then the baker would go, oh, we saw the milk truck, and they would donate the food. And that happened all the time. They would, they would pretend like there was food, and they'd be like, well, let's thank the Lord for the food. And there was nothing there, and it would just show up. Hope you don't mind me adding that. <clears throat> but they never missed a meal. They never lacked. From the minutely careful records that Mueller kept, it's evidenced in his life he raised over uh, 1,400,000 pounds, which is $7 million, that were sent to him for the building and maintaining of these orphan homes in an answer to prayer. And he actually walked away from a very established job where he could have been a like, proper minister with a salary because he, yeah. Anyway, sorry to add in. I know a lot about this guy. <laughs> and he also, just real quick, he also, they never took an offering either in their churches. They would just pray and put the thing in the back like a pushka, pushka thing. Um, so the undeniable reality of God's provision was evident to everyone familiar with his work. Samuel Chadwick in his book, The Path of Prayer, relates on occasion that when Dr. A.T. Pearson was a guest at George, of George Mueller's at his orphanage, he says, one night when all the household had retired, the 
he, Mueller, asked Pearson to join him in prayer. He told him there was absolutely nothing in the house. Oh, that's what I just shared. Nothing for the next morning breakfast. Keep going. Oh, a different story. My friend tried to uh, remonstrate with him and to remind him that all the stores were closed. Mueller knew that, but he had prayed as he always prayed, and he never told anyone of his needs but God. They prayed, at least Mueller did, and Pearson tried to. They went to bed and slept, and breakfast for 2,000 children was there in abundance at the usual breakfast hour. Neither Mueller nor Pearson ever knew how the answer came. The story was told the next morning to Simon Short of Bristol under the pledge of secrecy until the benefactor died. With details of it, the details of it are really thrilling, but all that needs to be told here is that the Lord called him out of bed in the middle of the night to send breakfast to Mueller's orphanage, and knowing nothing of the need or of the two men of prayer, he sent provisions that would feed them for a month. Considering the extraordinary power in the prayer life of George Mueller, it would be easy for some to regard him as a man with some special gift of faith, but Mueller himself, however, was quick to correct that misconception. In 1969, Mueller wrote, it is, 1869, sorry, <laughs> it is the self-same faith which is found in every believer and the growth of which I am most sensible of to myself, that for li by little by little, it has been increasing for the last 43 years. Oh, I beseech you, do not think of me as an extraordinary believer, having privileges above other of God's dear children, which they cannot have, nor to look on my way of acting as something that would not do for other believers. George Mueller's life is remarkable, not only for what he accomplished by speaking to God, but also for what he accomplished when speaking about God. During the entire time Mueller attended to the work of caring for thousands of orphans, he preached three times a week, totaling over 10,000 times. And it, he was busy. <laughs> At the age of 70, George Mueller began to travel the world to preach, covering over 200,000 miles in 42 different countries and speaking in several different languages. For the next 17 years, he preached on an average of once a day, frequently speaking to as many as 4,500 or 5,000 people at a time and reaching some 3 million people altogether while living a life of faith and prayer. Thank you. I'll say it again. Now, I'm not, I don't think that God wants you and I to be George Mueller. George Mueller had a particular call from God to prove to Victorian England that God was still a God who answered prayer. He wasn't doing it in order to show how special he was or anything like that. He just felt that God's reputation required somebody giving, them, giving people a sign that God is still a prayer-answering God. And for 62 years, over 10,000 orphans who never missed a meal, and he never asked anybody for a buck. He only went to God. And, there, and he said he had... Um, he kept meticulous records. He was a typical German. He was a Prussian. He kept very meticulous records. He, he recorded 50,000 answers to prayer during those years. So my challenge to you today is simple. Every day this week, will you set aside 10 minutes to pray? That's all I'm asking, 10 minutes. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I don't want to manipulate you. 
But I want to challenge you. 10 minutes a day with everything else turned off to pray. Bless you. Thank you.